what took place at the cross. I don't know if I can do justice to our passage this morning, but let's give it a shot. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 9 through verse 15. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is ahead over every power and authority. In him you, have, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. That's Easter. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Father, open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts. Stretch us this morning. Giving us a greater understanding of what was accomplished at the cross. Last week we began looking at how we are complete in Christ. We mentioned how because of the fall of man through sin way back in Genesis, every person starts out incomplete. They are spiritually incomplete because they are totally out of fellowship with God. They are morally incomplete because they have no true standard of conduct. They have no North Pole, if you will. They are mentally incomplete because they're incapable of knowing the truth. But when we acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and receive him into our lives, we become spiritually complete because we now have fellowship with the Father. We now are morally complete because we now have a standard and the power of the Holy Spirit to live by that standard and be obedient to it. And we are mentally complete because we now have the Holy Spirit living in us who leads us into all truth. That's what being in Christ accomplishes. This should not be a pride issue. We need to be really careful about that. It should not be a holier-than-thou or I'm-better-than-you attitude. My friend Munnerher from India, he joins us on Facebook, probably on Facebook this morning. But last week after our service, he sent me a quote by a Ph.D. professor from a seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He says, we're not in God's favor because we are better than the abortionists or white supremacists or racists or abusers or pagans or atheists or idolaters. We are in God's favor only because we are in Christ. Outside of Christ, we are hopeless. 
As we continue our study in Colossians, we've seen how the Apostle Paul is over and over making a strong statement about the person of Jesus Christ and his ability to save us completely. In our passage this morning, he continues his focus. Although this section is an argument against the false philosophies and heresies which are trying to infiltrate the Colossian church, the way Paul goes about doing this is by presenting the truth of Jesus Christ. You remember last time we began looking at verse 8, 8 to 9, where Paul said, Beware that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. And as he digs into this, he gets into this concept of who Christ is and what Christ can do and what he has done. He says, You don't need any human philosophy, you don't need any human wisdom. Um, because you are complete, we are full, we are whole in Him, in Christ, in whom, Paul says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is in the business of doing things completely. Remember in our study in Matthew, and no doubt as you've read through the other Gospels as well, when Jesus touched someone to make them well, He did it completely. He gave them whole. He made them whole. The man with a withered hand and arm, he unwithered it to full strength. The man born blind, complete sight, probably 20-20 vision. The crippled man for years was able to pick up his mat and walk away full strength. And just as Jesus Christ did miracles of healing and made people entirely well, when Jesus touches a life spiritually and gives salvation, it is entire salvation. It is whole salvation. That person becomes spiritually entirely well, whole, complete in Christ. That's Paul's whole point here. He's trying to say to these people, look, when you receive Christ, you were made whole. You don't need human philosophy. You don't need Jewish legalism. You don't need pagan mysticism. In the same way, when we receive Christ and his salvation, we too are made whole. And that's his point. How is that possible? Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Those are very important words, which we're going to be seeing in a moment. Behold, all things have become new. And Peter makes an amazing statement in 2 Peter 2, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. So how do we get it? Through our knowledge of Him who called us. Well, when do we come to know Christ? It's at conversion. At salvation. Then when do we get everything we need for a godly life the moment we believe in Christ. We've got it all. We don't need legalism. We don't need asceticism or mysticism or human philosophy. Now, coming back to Colossians 2.10, Paul says, In Christ you have been brought to fullness, and he is ahead over every power and authority. Literally, he says, you have been made full in him. You've been made complete. There's nothing missing. When Jesus died on the cross, what was the last thing he said? It is finished. And when he said that, he meant it not only in terms of all that I came to do, that I was sent to do, it's finished, 
but he is also in terms of accomplishing the fullness of salvation by what he did for us. It's finished. No more to be added. You're saying, okay, Pastor, got it. <laughs> We're complete in Christ. What does that mean? So glad you asked. Because interestingly enough, that's exactly where Paul goes in the next few verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. He shows us three ways in which we are complete in Christ. We are complete, we have complete salvation, we have complete forgiveness, and we have complete victory. First, Paul says salvation is complete in verses 11 and 12. He says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. This is an amazing, amazing passage. We're going to spend most of our time on these couple verses here this morning. Paul starts by hitting on the topic of circumcision, uh, because that was a big deal, all the way through the New Testament. That was one of the biggest things that the false teachers kept trying to impose on people. If you're going to be saved, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you've got to be circumcised to prove it. But what they failed to understand was that the act of circumcision in the Old Testament was only a sign. It was a symbol of what was to come, of what Christ was going to accomplish when he came. In the Old Testament, the surgical process of circumcision, the cutting away of or the giving up a part of the physical body, indicated that you were part of God's people. That small piece of flesh that was cut off would be put aside and would wither and die. And with that in mind, listen again to what Paul says happens in the completeness of Christ. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Let's stop there just a minute. This is not a surgical operation, this is a spiritual operation. What's he saying? It's not only a piece of flesh that is cut off. It's your whole self ruled by the flesh that was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. What's he saying there? What is your whole self ruled by flesh? That's our sinful nature. You see, before Christ, our sinful nature ruled because we were born that way. A person who is not transformed by the blood of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit has no choice but to sin because they are ruled by the sinful nature. But when we confess Jesus as Lord, we receive a new nature. And our whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off. Do you realize what Paul is saying here? Folks, our whole self has been put off, has been put to death. What is that? It's our sinful nature. And we have received a new nature. And with it, a new power, a new authority, a new life, and it's Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. He's saying, are you crazy? Why? 
We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Folks, we no longer have to sin. We can't use the excuse, "Ah, I couldn't help it, it's my nature. No, it's not. That's no longer our nature. We have a new nature. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I, myself, my nature, my inner being, who I am as a person, I have been, past tense, crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, that inner me, that old me, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's a mind-blowing concept. The problem that many believers have is is grasping what that new nature really is and what's really happened to the old nature. And then availing themselves of the power and authority of that new nature. We all have the authority of Christ and all the power of the Holy Spirit at our disposal. And God says, use it. I gave you the victory. Put it into practice. Why does it say, be holy for, as I am holy, if it's not possible? We are actually told how to be holy and to remain holy, and it's a battle that he expects us to fight. James chapter 4, verse 7 tells us, submit yourselves then to God. That's the key. That's a whole key to that, that uh, passage. Total submission to, to God and to his word. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he has to flee from you, and he will flee from you. Where do all the temptations and sin come from? It's the old self and from Satan. We need to ask ourselves, how close am I to the Lord? How submitted am I to the Lord? That's a prerequisite of using all that authority that he's given to us. But if we are submitted to the Lord, we can and need to resist the devil, and he will flee. He has to flee. I resist you. I resist this thought. I resist this desire. I resist this temptation. I resist this fear. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, leave me. Folks, just because a sinful thought comes into our mind does not mean that we have sinned. It's what we do with that thought that makes us either sinful or gives us a victory. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, not just to ward off strongholds, not just to hold them back, but to demolish them. That's amazing. That's that's a lot of power. The weapons we fight with have divine power, and therefore we have divine power. What's the greatest weapon at our disposal? It's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. That's the weapon that Jesus used in his temptations. In verse 5, Paul continues to say that with that weapon of divine power, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. What are those arguments and pretensions? That's the philosophies of the world that Paul is talking about. That's the good, the, 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 the fine-sounding arguments of the world that he mentions. Well, how do we know they, they're against the knowledge of God? Well, the knowledge of God is revealed in His Word. And if we don't get into His Word, or if we don't believe it's really true, 
And if we don't stand firm on it as an immovable rock, we're in big trouble. Why? Because we have to know the knowledge of God to fight the fine-sounding arguments of the world. Those are instigated by Satan, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what's fighting against us. So the weapon of God's word and the knowledge of God, Paul says, at the end of verse 5, and we take, with that weapon, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. You see, the thought, as evil and as sinful as it is, is not the sin. It's what we do with it. We need to say it out loud because Satan can't hear our thoughts. He'll put thoughts in our minds. He's not all-knowing as God is. I take that thought captive and I refuse it. I resist it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Leave. And then we need to, because we know the knowledge of God from his word, we need to replace that with the truth of God's word. That's how we do spiritual battle. Why can we do that? Because Christ has given us complete salvation. He has given us a new nature with all of its its power and authority, and he has put off our old nature and the power that it had over us, past tense. He has put it off. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus came to earth, he put on the human nature in order to defeat it? So that in his complete salvation that, the, that he then provided, he has now put off of us that old human nature, that old sinful nature. When we became a Christian, our old nature was taken away and we became a new creature with a new nature. You know, any old priest or any old doctor can circumcise a man's foreskin. But only Christ can circumcise a person's heart. That means cutting it away, cutting away the old sinful nature. You know, when you look at that symbol of circumcision in the Old Testament, it's kind of interesting because it pictures or it symbolizes the removal of sin and becoming a part of God's family or God's people. And listen, by its association with the organ of procreation, it stressed the sin inherent in our fallen nature as the offspring of Adam. The fact that it is that organ that produces life that must be circumcised pictures the influence that old nature on each successive generation and how it's passed on. The sin nature is passed from generation to generation, from Adam's time to the end. And so the actual form of the rite, R-I-T-E, emphasizes that it was human nature in reality that needed to be dealt with. So Christ put on that nature... Christ defeated that nature. Christ put that nature to death and buried it. Therefore, we have now put on Christ. If we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we have his new nature. And our old nature, the power of that nature, has been put to death. Folks, it's buried with Christ. That's how the spiritual circumcision is accomplished. Look at verse 12. You were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Here he's talking about spiritual baptism. Um, 
He's not talking about water baptism. Water baptism is important. That's, that's a whole different aspect of Scripture, which symbolizes or uh, the, the t- what's already taken place spiritually in our lives. Spiritually, positionally, our old sinful nature has been crucified, dead, and buried. And he's saying, now live like it. Live in that victory. How many times have you heard good-meaning Christians and even pastors say something like, you need to crucify your sinful nature every day. You need to die to self every day. Have you ever thought about how ridiculous those words actually are? How many times can you kill something? Besides that, who crucified the sinful nature and buried it? Christ did, not us. How ridiculous to think that we have to keep going back and killing it again and killing it again. What, Christ didn't do it good enough the first time? This may be a tough concept to wrap our minds around. The depth of this concept, but let me give it a shot here. We, we have to start with that premise, with the truth, right there in Colossians 2.11. Your whole self ruled by the flesh. Talking about our sinful nature, your whole self was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. What, when did that happen? When Christ became Lord of our life and we were saved. Now, let me take you to Romans chapter 7 a minute. This is when Paul was struggling with sin in his life. You remember it well. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that that is, in my flesh. But I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Do you notice something there? What was working in Paul's life? It wasn't the sinful nature. His sinful nature, like ours, was crucified, dead, and buried. He said, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Paul was being very honest about his own struggles with sin. Sometimes we put Paul up on this pedestal just thinking he's the holiest person, never sinned. He struggled like we do. There were times when sin lived in him and worked in him. Why? Because he did not take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Our mind is the battleground. Every thought, every desire, good or evil, begins here. And if we do not take it captive and we begin thinking about it, it becomes sin. Sin then gains ground. Sin then becomes stronger. And that's how we give a foothold to the enemy to begin working in us. Because it's sin now that is working in us. It's no longer our sinful nature. It's sin that we have allowed in our lives. See, I don't believe we can have two natures. Only Christ had two natures, fully God, fully man. We have old bodies, corruptible. 
We have old minds, corruptible, both still susceptible to weakness and to the enemy if we allow it. That's why at the last trumpet, in the twinkling of eye, these corruptible bodies will be raised incorruptible. Our souls have already changed. That's the resurrection that we've already had. Now we're waiting for our bodies to be changed, incorruptible, to join with the new nature that we have. Shall we go on sinning? Paul asked in Romans 6. No. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Do we really believe that? Do we believe that our sinful nature is dead? I have been crucified with Christ. Past tense. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because it's that new nature now that is alive in me. Why is it that I no longer live? Because my sinful nature died with Christ and He has given me a new life, a new heart, a new nature, His nature. And therefore, I live in Him and He lives in me. What a freeing thought that is. Have you thought about that? What an empowering truth. I'm no longer battling my own sinful nature that ruled me and made me do things I didn't want to do, I've got Christ's nature, and now my battle is against the principalities of the dark world that's constantly warring against me. And then Paul goes a step further in verse 12. Your whole, your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. So what is this baptism? Again, it's not water baptism that, that uh, Paul is talking, referring to here. Baptism by water is a public proclamation of what's already transpired in our self, spiritually. But here's a question. Why does Paul connect circumcision with baptism? Is he just switching out one rite or one ritual with another? That can't be the answer because Paul hates ritual just for the sake of ritual. I got to pondering. What did they do with the foreskin after circumcision? Ever thought about that? Kind of bizarre thought. So I Googled it. The answer is really very simple. A mohel is the Jewish name for a ritual circumciser. A mohel usually buried them in the ground. Isn't that interesting? Do you see the connection? Just as physical circumcision was a symbol of the removal of sin and becoming a part of God's people, and the foreskin was buried, Christ was a fulfillment of that practice when He circumcised our hearts and He put off the sinful nature, the whole sinful nature, and buried it. You only bury something that is dead. When I became a Christian, when you became a Christian, it's as if we were buried. We died, and then we rose again in new life with a new nature. Of course, that's what baptism signifies. We are so identified in faith by, with Him that we are in His death, we are in His burial, and we are in His resurrection. Amazing truth. And how's that done? Through your faith in the working of God 
who raised him from the dead. Just as God raised Jesus, so he raised us from the dead when we believed in Christ. Your old life died and was buried and you rose in new life. The word translated here as work, the working of God is actually a Greek word for energy. That God's energy, God's resurrection power, God who raised him from the dead, raises us from the dead so that when we received Christ, we were buried, our old life dies, and we became alive with the energy and power of God. Listen, there are only two things you can be, right? Either dead or alive. Can't be both. Folks, we who believe in God's power, we who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, have also been raised, past tense, with him. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When we believe that and confess it with our mouth, our old life dies, is buried, and we rise in newness of life. It's a spiritual miracle. And do you know what we, we experience? The same power. The same power with which God raised Jesus from the dead. Part of Paul's prayer for us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 was, I pray that you may know his incorruptible, excuse me, his incorruptibly great power for us who believe. We have it. He has given that to us. That power is the same as a mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. Why? Because that's been put off, remember? It's been crucified, dead, buried. But you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Because it's the Spirit that makes us alive in Christ. Back to our passage, your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working or the energy or the power of God who raised him from the dead. Paul says in a different way in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 7. Listen, don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus and baptized into his death? There it is again. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, a new resurrection life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be slightly altered to give some room for the new nature. That's not what he says at all. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. The word means to destroy. It means to abolish. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. The sinful nature makes us slaves to sin. So does that mean that we're never going to sin again? <laughs> no. But we are free from the condemnation of it. Remember what Paul tells us in Romans 8, 1 and 2, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The wages of sin 
is death. That's condemnation. But Jesus paid the price by dying on the cross. At the cross, at the cross. Amazing what Jesus accomplished. Therefore, our old self and, our, and the condemnation of our sin was also buried with him. One more verse from Romans chapter 6. No, two verses. 10 and 11. The death he, the death Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourselves. Believe this truth. Wrap your mind around this truth. Stand firm on the truth. And with this truth, know and believe that you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Being complete in Christ means that we have complete salvation. It's not just partial. It's complete. And with this truth of complete salvation, the last two points that we want to look at are really quite self-evident. They go quite quickly. With complete salvation comes complete forgiveness. Verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and in this uncircumcision of your flesh, before you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, God made you alive with Christ. That corresponds with what Paul teaches in Ephesians 2, 4. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Now listen, he forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Notice the he and him in contrast to the you in these verses. When you were dead in your sins and in this uncircumcision of your flesh, what did Christ do? He forgave. He canceled the charge. He took the sin away. He nailed it to the cross. It's all him. Remember what Paul said in Romans 8, 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why. Well, what about the scriptures that say then that we have to confess sin? What's going on there? Why do we have to do that if he took them all away? Well, that's the difference between condemnation and consequences. The wages of sin is death, spiritual forever death. That's condemnation. Jesus paid those wages. He paid that price at the cross, so there is no longer any condemnation. That's off the table for us. The consequences of sin, however, often remain. What do I mean? Well, let's look at the flip side. What are some of the benefits of being righteous? We looked at some of these at our Bible study this last week. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. What happens if we're living in sin? For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. The light of the righteous shines brightly. What's going on when we're sinning? What are the consequences? The Lord hears the prayer of the righteous. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. What the righteous desire will be granted. Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. And then one from the flip side. Psalm 66, verse 18, which says, as an example, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. There are consequences to sin. Not condemnation, 
There are consequences. That's why we are to keep short accounts. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And he will then make us righteous again in his sight. Because the sin is gone. And then what does he do with them? He removes them as far as the east is from the west. Complete forgiveness. Coming from complete salvation. And because of those two, we have complete victory. Verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities. Who did that? Jesus. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Where? At the cross. The Apostle Paul, like all of us, struggled and wrestled with sin, frustrated with that battle. But he found victory. Again, he says, what a wretched man I am. Who, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He turned the corner and counted himself dead to sin and alive in Christ. Sometimes we're, I think we're our own worst enemy. And I think that in the minds of many Christians, God's word, God's truth is theoretical. Theoretically, we believe God's truth. It's easy to say, yes, I believe that. But the reality is, you know, I, I just don't feel that's the way it is in my life. You see what just took place? We've allowed our feelings and emotions then to begin dictating the truth. And perhaps even reinterpreting the truth. It's so dangerous. We must count on, we must reckon, we must believe and stand firm on the truth and allow that truth then to dictate the emotions. That's actually exactly what Paul did here in that same passage. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Emotions. He was allowing his emotions to get the better of him. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He put his emotions aside and came back and stood on the truth and got his focus back to where it ought to be, on Christ. Folks, we have victory in Christ. Death was the greatest and final, final weapon of Satan, and Jesus destroyed it at the cross. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God. He gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Why is he thanking God? Because it's his energy. It's his power that accomplished all this. It's his power that raised Jesus from the dead. And it's that same power through the fullness of Christ that has given us complete salvation, it's given us complete forgiveness, and it's given us complete victory. We are complete in Christ. And the question is, do we believe it? Paul says, count on it. Father, this morning, thank you for the victory that you have given to us. Sometimes we struggle, but in that struggle, we have victory. We can stand firm because we have all the authority in that new nature of Jesus Christ, which is working in us, and the power of God, which is working so powerfully in us. 
We can stand against the attacks of the enemy. We can ward off. We can refuse sin in our lives. And that's a continual battle. There there are times that we mess up. There are times that we don't take a thought captive. We just allow it to ferment and spoil the truth in our minds and the rightness and the righteousness. And when we act again, act with it, Father, that's when we fall into sin, and then the sin begins working in our lives. The enemy says, ah, I got him now. That's exactly what I wanted. Father, I pray that you'd help us to live in that newness of life, live in that new nature, live with the promise and authority of Jesus Christ and taking every thought captive, making obedient to Christ, being submitted to God. Then we can say, Satan, I, I I, I resist that. I don't believe it. I don't want to hear that. Leave me in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will flee. What victory we have. Thank you. At the cross, at the cross. It's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead that we have working in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.